touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we are going to take another look at archaeology. This is our part two on archaeology and the tools used in the trade. Uh, yes, in the first episode, we talked a lot about the history and about carbon dating and some of the other dating methods that exist for, um, for you know, when you've got something that you have dug up from the ground, figuring out how old it is. Yep. And also some of the hand tools used for digging stuff up out of the ground. Now, that turns out that as technology has advanced, archaeologists have figured out ways of applying that technology in their own field. And we're starting to see some technologies that are developed specifically for archaeological pursuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a lot of new ways of figuring out where in the ground you want to dig stuff up. Right. So let's go ahead and look at some of the higher tech stuff. Now, some of it is, again, basic equipment that has proved itself to be really useful in lots of disciplines. So mm-hmm. why not archaeology? One of those, obviously, would be cameras. Uh, right. Uh, as we talked about in the first episode, you do a lot of documenting the site when you're doing archaeology because mm. it is, by its nature, a destructive science. Once you have dug up a site, it is never going to be the same again. So documenting exactly how you found everything is very helpful for the future. Yep. Going through every single step of the of the way, just like, as you were saying before, Lauren, with a with a crime scene, where forensics have to come in and document everything, it's very much the same sort of uh, principle here. Uh, except, of course, we're not looking at a crime. We're looking at the uh, evidence of a, a human settlement at some point in the past. And maybe an ancient crime, but not really in the same way. <laughs> right. It could be some fashion crimes. I'm sure there were several of those. <laughs> uh, it'd be the ancient version of me, pretty much. So, Aww. yeah, cameras would be things like, you know, film cameras, digital cameras, and not just cameras that take the kind of images that we usually take. There are also cameras that might take images that are infrared. Sure. Uh, now, obviously, the version that we see would not be an infrared because we wouldn't be able to see it, <laughs> but it would be no, using no, the infrared no, spectrum. Scaled into into visible spectrum right. for us. Which but. that could pick up stuff that otherwise we might not see, you know, just with the way that our eyes work, you know, within the visible spectrum, mm-hmm. which is why you would use it. Yeah, that's going to be an important part of one of our later notes. Right. But, um, but also in the kind of relatively basic technology section, we've got robots. Yeah. In fact, uh, the robots thing is really getting exciting because we've got a couple of different options here. You know, you've got your... Your robots that obviously you want to send a robot in whenever it's going to be really difficult to get people there or really dangerous to get people there. Mm -hmm. If you aren't really sure if the environment is a safe one, obviously losing a hundred thousand dollar robot is a small price to pay compared to putting someone's life in danger. Oh, sure. Or in the kind of tight spaces that humans literally cannot get into. Yeah. Right. So if it could, if it might be that perhaps there was a natural disaster that has uh, sealed off something that once was open, and then, you know, we can't get in there easily now, but a robot could. Also, if it's in an area that we can't access because there are no more roads that lead up there, perhaps there were roads once upon a time, but they have been overgrown and they're they're gone now. Uh, other types of, of robots that people might use are, are the actual, like, quadcopter, six-rotor, eight-rotor sure you know, things with uh, cameras on them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and all of these also have the benefit of being, I mean, you know, humans are, you know, a hundred to 300 pounds or so, and robots can have a much smaller footprint and cause a lot less damage sure. to a, to a surrounding area. So uh, both of those devices are, are used 
pretty, pretty extensively. Obviously, one of the most important pieces of equipment in an archaeological dig today would be a computer. Right. Because as it turns out, now that as our tools have become more sophisticated, we've been able to uh, extract a lot more information about the archaeological digs we do. Right. So with that information comes a need to be able to analyze it and synthesize it and store it. It's and and cross-reference. And, and I mean, even for the basic kinds of information that we were coming up with a few hundred years ago, I, a computer, in order to crunch those numbers and kind of uh, compare things and try to pull similarities and patterns out of the data would have been very useful. Sure. And if you want to do something, even along the lines of using a computer to perhaps construct a virtual representation of the site that you're looking at, something mm-hmm. so that you can kind of see what it may have looked like back when it was, you know, a, an actual existing human settlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, a computer would be really important. So if you if you have, you know, basic uh, information like the layout of the settlement, you know, you've determined where the, the structures were and what the perimeter was of this place, you might be able to reconstruct that virtually, which would be an invaluable tool, not just for... Uh, the purposes of that dig, but for scholarship further down the line. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen some people kind of play with this in different ways. Some ways it's it's a little bit, uh, you know, I hesitate to use the word easier, but a little less, there's less work required on an archaeological side of things. For example, there have been people who have created the Google Earth models of ancient Rome. Sure. So yeah. a lot of those uh those examples of ancient architecture are still in Rome, uh, in ruins, forms of ruins. But, oh, right, right. But you can still see some of it. And so that makes it a little bit easier than, say, a settlement that is currently, you know, three feet under sand in Egypt. Yes, yes. But um, but with, with both of those examples, aren't there some virtual reality kind of applications that are coming into use these days? Yeah, there actually are. There's a, a project specifically called Virtual Environments for Research in Archaeology. Uh, this was one that I saw on a, a British journal website, which is all about using virtual reality to build on our understanding of archaeological finds. So again, uh, it's it's really to create that full picture, literally, in this case, a virtual picture mm-hmm. of an environment so that we can have a closer connection to our ancestors and really understand the progress that that humanity has gone through to walk through one of these towns. Yeah, yeah. You, you could you could, in theory, assuming that your data is good enough, you could, in theory, have a, a pretty immersive experience. I mean, I can even imagine a world where some educational organization takes it upon themselves to make a truly kind of immersive experience where it's like a virtual tour of these ancient landscapes and then using something like the Oculus Rift so that you can get sort of a first-person perspective of what it would have been like to move around in such an environment. Now, if you think of that as an educational tool that you put in high schools where you're no longer just reading about these ancient civilizations, but you can actually look around and see what it would have looked like I like I, I remember reading in art history and in other history courses about uh, the ancient Roman structures. Mm-hmm. But until I visited Rome, I really had no concept of the scale of these sort of things. Oh, sure, and you know, and I mean, even 
those those little kind of kind of probably slightly terrible watercolor drawings in my early history books were always my favorite parts. Just getting to see like, oh, that's what that was like. But of course, that's not what that was really like. Right. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, these computers obviously very important. Not just, I mean, the virtual environment stuff is really cool. That's a kind of the sexy side of the computers. The ones that are actually used in the field might not be nearly that sophisticated. They're it's probably more a lot for, more like Excel spreadsheet kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's it's about data collection and storage, and then eventually analysis. Uh, but it, they are obviously very important tools. Uh, some other important tools. Let's get to some surveying equipment. And this is probably my favorite device on the whole list because it uh, it made me think like it, it slipped out of a Terry Pratchett Discworld novel or something. <laughs> the Theodolite. Theodolite. Yeah. That's how you say it. I was going to wait and let you pronounce it. I had that to watch first. a video first. In fact, here's the secret here. Originally, I watched the video just so I could figure out how to say Theodolite properly instead of saying it like Theodolite or something. Uh, so I, I, it was a, it was an English video, as in British English. Uh, and it was actually describing how to set up a Theodolite for students. So students of archaeology and, uh, not just archaeology. It's actually used in a few different disciplines, but how students could set one up properly so that they could learn how to take the right kind of measurements. Uh, and the, these measurements, by the way, which we have not said yet, are, um, are, are angles in both horizontal and vertical planes, right. as I understand it. But I've got a very poor concept okay. of, of how this is laid out. It, what does it do? All right. So let's say that, uh, you, you establish your base point. This is the point where you're setting up the theodolite. You actually have to be really, really precise with this. In other words, the best thing to do is to set up something directly underneath the theodolite, which is on a, a tripod. Okay. So okay. it's the, the theodolite itself is kind of like a telescope. It's suspended above this point that you have established. Um, it actually has a lens that points straight down so that you can, uh, you can maneuver it so that it's directly above your point of reference. Now, this point of reference is a, is a, a point that you know all the stuff about. Like, you know exactly where this is in the grand scheme of things. Perhaps you have the global positioning units for it. So you know exactly where this place is. Okay. Now, you've got at least two other points that you want to compare to each other that are off in the distance. All right. So the way this would work is you would focus in on one of those two points Take some measurements, focus on the second of the two points, take some measurements, compare the two, and then you know more about the relationship of those two points in the distance to each other as well as to you. So a theodolite's really important to do things like measure. Well, mostly it's the angles, but a lot of theodolites now also have range finders on them, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh-huh. Uh, but the idea is to really establish where things are in relation to each other when you're trying to figure out a full excavation site. So oh, okay. you might say, let's say that uh, the main uh, temple of an ancient city was in this one part and the house of the the ruler is in this other part. And by that, you're starting to establish relationships culturally, not just archaeologically, not just you know architecturally or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're starting to draw some other social and cultural implications from this information. This is what the theodolite helps you do it gets that quantifiable data that you could use to start building on this other stuff that might be more humanity related as opposed to scientifically related so uh it allows you to look at the horizontal or vertical plane meaning that you can tell angles from left to right or up and down so you know not everything is built on a perfectly flat level surface uh right and archaeological digs are frequently 
you know, on on various steps and levels down into the ground. Yeah, so. yeah. You might have you might have houses that were on hills that are on uh, the sides of areas that you know, it, or or that the ground has shifted in yep. the intervening years. And so the theodolite allows you to have very precise measurements of where these different points of reference are in relation to each other. And uh, the I'll try and link. Uh, I'll make sure I link a video. When we, it may be a little after this podcast goes out, because I think I'm going to be gone while it does come out. I'll be at CES. But, uh, I'll link some videos that show a theodolite being used and explaining why it's being used the way it is. Now, the older theodolites had these glass plates on them that actually had the markings on them. So one glass plate, for example, would have, uh, markings from zero to 360, marking the degrees of the circle, mm-hmm. right? And a second glass plate, would essentially just have an arrow on it. And since they're both clear, you can see where the arrow is in relation to the dial. Well, yeah, so you just had to align them and then manually take down measurements. I assume that the new models are, are digital and yeah, will do that for you. Exactly. So uh, people who are using a, a very modern theodolite might not have to be quite as... I mean, you still have to be very careful the way you set it up. But you might not have to be quite as careful in the use of it in these older ones. I was watching this and it was interesting. It was so intricate. I mean, it looks like a telescope that simply can pivot up and down and left and right. That's all it looked like just at first glance. But then when you see all the individual parts that turn relative to each other so that you can actually take down these measurements, it's pretty phenomenal how complex it is. Uh, at any rate, and, and, and eventually it's just so that you can figure out angles. <laughs> like It's like, wow, this is a really complicated thing just to figure For out the angles. angles. But, it is very important to establish the relationship of these different structures within an excavation site. Uh, moving on, we I mentioned rangefinders and electronic distance meter as an example, which uses some form of electromagnetic signal to establish how far away uh, a reference point is from the device itself. So you can even have handheld versions of this where. So it, this is something that sends out a signal and then. Uh, uh counts counts the time that it takes for the signal to bounce back. Right. And because we know how fast the signal travels, mm-hmm. that means you can determine how far away that object is. Another very similar piece of technology of this is the LIDAR. Which uh, is, sometimes called a, a laser rangefinder. Yep. Light detection and ranging. Uh, usually it is using pulses of laser light. It's not always laser, but more sure. frequently than not it is. And so it's using these very short pulses of laser light to uh, shoot out at whatever the reference area is, you know, whatever you're aiming at. It hits that, bounces back, comes back. Same sort of thing as the electronic distance meter. It finds the distance based upon the time it took for the light to leave the device and reflect off of the object and hit the the receiver. The return sensor, yeah. yeah. So once you've done that, then you can actually say, oh, so this is that far away. And obviously, again, to establish what the the parameters are for any site, this sort of stuff is really important. Uh, yeah. And then those those uh, infrared microwave or, or, or ultrasound devices could possibly be used for stuff that's that's underground. Yep. It's filled in, uh, like in the case of Vesuvius. Sure. Yeah. You can actually have electromagnetic radiation that will penetrate the ground and reflect off of stuff. It really works well if you have a uniform type of soil. Like if there's sure. a lot of different stuff in the soil, then you can get some corrupted readings. You know, you might too much uh, static. Yeah, it's like it's like if you went into a, uh, um, uh, you know, a beach and you're using a metal detector and you're looking for some sort of coins there, but someone has 
thoughtfully gone in there and dropped a whole bunch of just worthless chunks Scattered of metal. buckshot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that the metal detector would pick up, but would be totally worthless. And yeah, you'd be detecting lots of stuff, but none of it would be valuable. Same sort of thing with the, this stuff. If the ground is not in uniform uh, kind of uh, consistency. consistency, thank you, then you could have some real problems. And of course, LIDAR uh, won't penetrate the ground at all. It's it's light based, so it'll just reflect right back off. But these other ones, like you mentioned, totally would work, and in fact, do work. Uh, but still, all of these are very useful for um, for collecting that precise data that is going to help out research down the line as yep. you are systematically destroying your excavation site. Right now, th- these approaches right here are a little less uh, destructive than say digging right. everything up. That too. But uh, and obviously it would be really important when you want to do something like build that virtual environment we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. You have to have all these facts and figures to do that. Yeah, and and before I mean once you've got this this data set down, you can feel a little bit more comfortable going in and kind of must, m- mucking stuff up knowing yeah. that you've already got the original locations of everything laid out. Yeah, it's it's never going to be the way it was back in the day, folks. We just have to resolve ourselves to that. Um, I think, isn't that the good thing about technology? Well, I'm just saying the archaeological site itself is never going to be pristine. Oh, oh, that thing. Okay. <laughs> so once we've established what, 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 what it was before we started getting really down and dirty, I think we're all right. You know, uh, there's, there's this one part of me who's like, we shouldn't disturb that because that's historically important. But then I think, well, then if we don't disturb it, we don't learn anything. We don't learn anything. So yeah, that's a problem. I, I think as long as you're you're not running around shouting, it belongs in a museum, then you're you know, basically. I'm going to have to really think on this, Lauren. I'm going to have to really take this into consideration. So I think in order for me to really have the time to think about this deeply, we need to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, we're back. And uh, for those of you who are wondering what... My conclusion was, uh, yeah, let's just rip it all up. Let's just rip it all up. Okay, so moving on. Now we've talked about surveying equipment. Let's talk about geophysical equipment, which in some ways is similar. But um, there are other means of making sure that the place that you're you're exploring does, in fact, have some sort of archaeological significance. And one of the first things that we can talk about are resistivity meters, checking the resistance the electrical resistance of an area. And you might first think like, wow, that's kind of weird. You're checking to see, you know, isn't the ground ground? Like, isn't it non-conductive and therefore you don't, it doesn't help at all? Uh, no. Well, I mean, that that sounds kind of like a really fancy metal detector. It kind of is. It kind of is. So the idea is that you're you're measuring for the electrical potential between an inner pair and an outer pair of electrodes or multiple electrodes that are across a region. Okay, so... Uh, they're all kind of um, testing to see what the conductivity of that particular area happens to be. So if there is conductive material, then by measuring that resistance, you can determine, oh, there's something organic here or perhaps there's something metal here that could indicate a human settlement was once here. If you start to detect less you know, or more, you know, more resistance and, and less conductivity, that's an indication that there could be something that's blocking the signal that could be like a stone wall. So if now if it's exactly what it should be based upon your knowledge of the soil in the area, that's an indication that there's nothing there. And that maybe you don't need to waste your time digging down there. Yeah, that maybe you need to move 100 feet off to the right or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, you know, it's really to kind of establish what is a good place to to actually say this is where the, the excavation site is going to be. So. Uh, 
it is sort of like a metal detector. There's another one called the electromagnetic conductivity instrument, which is essentially creating uh, an electric current in a sending coil. So we've talked about this so many times, Lauren, <laughs> the idea of an electric current running through, uh, like especially an alternating electric current creates a magnetic field, like a sure. fluctuating magnetic field. And magnetic fields, when uh, fluctuating, if they're near a conductor, will induce electricity to flow. Okay. So that's the general idea. You've got this this probe that starts an electric uh, current that allows this magnetic field to uh, affect anything that's conductive in the area. So if there's something conductive in the soil, it'll start to have an electric charge run through it. And so by trying to, uh, by using an instrument that detects an electric charge, you can therefore uh, determine whether or not there's something of interest down in the soil. Right. So that's why this thing is has got a sending coil and a receiving coil. The receiving coil is to detect any of that other electric charge that might be happening in the region. So it's an interesting approach. It's not as precise as the resistivity meters, uh, but it is another kind of approach to similar to that of a metal detector. Um, in fact, I'll go ahead and mention metal detectors. We've talked about those before. I think we did a full episode of metal detectors, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think that we did personally, but perhaps you and Chris did. Could have been. Are you Could mistaking have been me, me with Chris. Chris again? It might be. It might be. You know, you look like a librarian, Lauren. I'm sorry. It's just, it's, you know. Anyway, so metal detectors use electromagnetic induction. Uh, so that's, again, a, a way of co- detecting conductive materials. In fact, there are metal detectors that are so sensitive they can distinguish between different types of conductive metals. Oh, cool. So you would be able to tell right away using a metal detector, assuming it's the right type. I mean, not all metal detectors are created equally. But assuming it's the right type, you'd be able to tell very quickly what type of metal you are detecting. And if it's a type that you weren't expecting to find... That could mean lots of different things. It could mean that the site's been corrupted. It could mean that there's some other geological thing going on that is giving you false readings. Uh, right, because any of these um, uh, electromagnetic devices could probably be thrown off by by Wiggins in the area. Oh, yeah. If you've got something that's really magnetic in the area, that could definitely throw things off. you know. Or if you've got a lot of just natural uh, metal deposits, like ores or whatever, that could also throw things off. So... Uh, you know, knowing knowing geological facts about the area you're excavating would be really important because you would know the odds of running into that type of stuff. Sure. So that would at least reduce the chance of a false positive if you already know what does and doesn't exist in that area. Typically, I mean, there are always weird cases where you're like, wow, no one knew that the world's giant natural magnet was directly underneath where we thought <laughs> there was going to be a lost city. But it could just be a copper deposit. I mean, you know, so. Um, okay. And the last, the last electromagnetic device on our list, um, is, is one, the pronunciation of which you have proclaimed to be very excited about. Yeah. I proclaimed it because I realized that I didn't know what it was. It's magnetometer. So not I, magnetometer. No, I wanted it to be magnetometer so badly. This is where I'm sad that I was, I was determined not to show my ignorance. So it's a magnetometer. But I wanted it to be a magnetometer. And it'll, I wanted it to be the, be a magnetometer in your heart. Yes. It's the leader of the brotherhood of, uh, this was it, the evil brotherhood of mutants meter. Uh, no, it's the magnetometer and it's a sensor that measures magnetic fields. So again, very similar. We're talking about a lot of electro, electromagnetic forces here, but they're all basically looking for similar things just in different ways, right? 
So electrical resistance versus electrical current versus a magnetic field. Again, you're looking to see if there's anything that's creating small fluctuations. Now, the Earth's magnetic field is pretty predictable, but there's stuff that makes the Earth's magnetic field in very small regions fluctuate in subtle ways. So these meters are actually able to detect those subtle fluctuations and be able to tell you, hey, there's something here that is interrupting what would normally be the the reading you would expect to find here, which, again, could indicate that there's something that was made by humans that's present there. Again, natural deposits could throw that off. So it may it's possible that the readings you get are actually you know, maybe you're going to strike it rich because you just realized you found a a, a vein of ore that's incredibly valuable, but it is but not, not a human historically settlement. valuable. Yeah, you, you might be crying all the way to the bank, uh, but no, it's it's generally used to cr- try and find stuff that uh that humans have made artifacts that would disrupt that magnetic field one way or the other, and even stuff that you don't think typically as being magnetic can affect a magnetic field. So that's why it's important. And you have to have a really sensitive one to detect those small fluctuations. Uh, right. It's not just like ferrous iron ore or anything like that. It's not just a needle that goes from zero to something's magnetic. You know, it's got to <laughs> it's got to be really precise. Right. Uh, then you've got a couple of other things. Uh, ground penetrating radar, GPR. This is an electromagnetic pulse. Once again getting into the electromagnets. It gets sent into the ground. Stuff in the ground reflects the pulse back to the device, which the receiver uh, will pick up on once it comes back to the device. And so the amount of time it took for a pulse to return to the receiver indicates the depth of the artifacts. And uh, for it to work best, you definitely don't want to have a lot of conductive material in it or you're going to get some corrupted data coming back. Okay, um, so, so so I missed that one on our on our list of of uh, electromagnetic devices, but that's okay. Yeah, because um, in this case, it's more about it's like echolocation. It's okay. more like that than a, as opposed to detecting a charge or detecting a magnetic field. This is so more like shouting specifically for 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 metals. No, sure. yeah, you're just looking to see is there something that you wouldn't expect to be down there. And again, this works really well on uniform soil because if there are a lot of big rocks in the area, that's going to reflect those signals back. And give you false readings. And then you might dig and you're like, wow, this rock, I'm sure, has incredible historical significance in some context, <laughs> just not in archaeology. Uh, and then the other big one, of course, being global positioning systems, GPS, so that you can determine specific coordinates for the excavation site. This is obviously really useful so that you can have a planned visit. You know, it's not. Archaeologists aren't the kind of people who just pack up in a suit, uh, you know, a backpack and just wander out into the, the wilderness and then hope they find something and Usually then stay not. and then no. stay there forever until it's done. Like they'll they'll do surveys and they'll do uh, they'll do some exploratory searches and they'll they'll look at some other data we're going to talk about in just a second. But they don't necessarily just, you know, throw a dart at a, a map and say, let's go there. And then stay there. They usually will visit a site, establish some a camp. Perhaps they'll just write down what the coordinates are, then return to get more material so they can do a full excavation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, also, once they're there, um, measurements can be taken throughout the process of a dig to help uh, to help figure out or to help note for the record for for future research exactly where objects were positioned from from above and from the sides. Right. This has definitely become more useful ever since. Uh, GPS has, has been, has, well, the precision of GPS has increased over years. Part of that was an artificial 
uh, leap. Uh, right, because the the military originally the, the GPS was kind of um, uh, pioneered by the U.S. Navy, I believe. And yeah. uh, and and they originally put kind of a cap on how precise it was going to be for for consumer end users. Right, because they didn't want consumers to be able. Well, specifically, they didn't want uh, other states, Competing, right? Other states being able to determine sp- where things like military installations were with precision. I mean, that would be terrible to give a s- potential enemies a direct line of of uh, you know sight, essentially from a satellite point of view of where your stuff was. But now that's all been lifted. So that's why you are able to use a GPS uh, device in your car and be able to get precise directions, uh, as opposed to somewhere in the next 300 feet, there will be a turn either to the left or the right. Take it. <laughs> that's Let less useful. Yeah, not as useful. More philosophical. So, yeah, that brings us into satellites. So beyond just GPS Satellites have become really important in archaeology because they have unveiled potential excavation sites that people had just not ever been able to see in the in the, you know, in the visible memorable. spectrum. Yeah, honestly, we've got we've got stuff in Egypt is a great example, right? There there are sites in Egypt that are covered in sand uh, that and are, have been for thousands upon thousands of years. And they're re- they're really remote. So it's not like it's a place that. Someone could have accidentally fallen upon it just because they happen to be going from point A to point B. Uh, which totally happens. You mm-hmm. know, kids playing under trees, for example, have led to major archaeological finds. Yep, yep. But uh, in some cases, they're just miles away from anything else of modern society. And so satellites have started to pick up on things that archaeologists have found very useful. They will uh, go back and review satellite imagery, especially if they have a general idea of where a site might be, like within let's say a given you know, 100 square mile range, that's a huge range to cover on foot. But on satellite, that's pretty simple to take a look at. Mm-hmm. And so you might pour over. You could spend hundreds of hours looking at this stuff, trying to find any sort of uh, patterns or examples of something that could indicate an old settlement is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also uh, non-visible spectrum ranges, uh, the thermal infrared in, in particular, I think can be really instrumental in determining where where sites like this might be. Yeah, yeah. There have been lots of examples of using infrared imaging to see the different densities of sand in an area or even soil. I mean, it's not I say sand because it's easy to imagine like, sure. when you think of Egypt. Uh, but this this applies to spaces all over the world. But if you are able to see that there are different densities, that suggests that there could be something that's buried underneath the surface, mm-hmm. which could require a closer look. And in some cases, I've seen pictures of, of archaeologists who are able to take uh, a, an infrared image and then map out what looks to be a, a full human settlement, like a city. In fact, an, an old capital of Egypt called Tanis was discovered this way. Uh, yeah, well, it, it was it was further explored. Um, and Tanis is one of the ones that was made famous by Indiana Jones and uh, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Um, but uh, in 2011, a University of Alabama archaeologist named Sarah Perrick and her team used used this imaging um, from NASA and commercial satellites to discover like 17 pyramids, over a thousand tombs and over 3000 ancient settlements in Egypt. That's pretty incredible. I mean, 
being able to discover this stuff, and, and uh, as I understand, you saw a video of her talking about this, right? Uh, yeah, she has a really cool TED Talk about it, a really short one, actually, a good five-minute sort of thing. Uh, so we'll try to remember to link that out on social when this episode airs. Yeah, I read a great article that had some quotes from her and, and her work. I think she actually... I think the direct quote she had in the article was, Indiana Jones, eat your heart out. Ha, huh, that's wonderful. That's got some great attitude in it. And uh, and yeah, the, the technique has been used all over the place. Um, You know, it, it was also used in, in Chaco Canyon in New Mexico to discover a whole roadway system that was linear and built through topographic obstructions and 20 feet wide and ranged over 200 miles, um, all by a people that were pretty sure didn't use animals for manual labor. Yeah, so this was all human-made. Uh, yeah. like human Humans dragged the equipment needed to construct this stuff for the entire length and breadth of it. That's pretty incredible. And there's a possibility that we never would have known about any of that without this technique. Yeah, and also satellites are being used to help protect archaeological sites. So one of the big problems, this brings us back to the top of our la- of our first episode on archaeology. You know, we talked about how archaeology essentially started out as tomb raiding. Right. Uh, well, tomb raiding still a thing. I mean, you still oh, have, absolutely. you know, the, the market for antiquities is just as, uh, as alive today as it was back in the day when all the rich people in Europe said, Hey, I want that stuff. Uh, it's more of a black market now, um, because yeah. most of these are, are preserved historical sites, but. Right. So you, you do have some people who, in some eyes, what you could call enterprising and others you could call, uh, you know, destructive because they are going into these historical sites and removing stuff. Uh, but how do you protect everything? I mean, it's, it turns out there are a lot of archaeological sites out there and you can't be everywhere at once. Well, archaeologists are starting to use satellites to try and gather data. Some of these satellites are gathering data on a daily basis and they can review it and see if there are any new pits that are opening up that indicate that someone's raiding something. And then they can alert the respective country's authorities and most of these countries have very strict rules about who can and can't go into these sites. So they can send security out to sure. uh, to check in on those places yeah, and yeah. cut down on looting. Uh, th- this can even be, you know, well-meaning explorers who don't understand that, that you know, you know, they're, they're thinking, oh, I'm an amateur archaeologist and don't realize that by being an amateur, what they might be doing is is destroying important artifacts or even you know, a best case scenario, contaminating them because right. they're getting their grubby carbon all over everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep um, your carbon hands off me. You darn carbon ape. <laughs> <laughs> also, a side note about um, about infrared spectrum kind of stuff. Um, OK, so so have you ever heard of the pigment Egyptian blue? Uh I have heard it before, but I didn't know anything about it until you had done this research. Uh, it is, in fact, the oldest known artificial pigment in the world, and it happens to reflect infrared light when a red light is shown on it. OK. OK. Um, so and and that's even when over the course of like, you know, some four thousand five hundred years have passed um, and the paint has been reduced to like nano sheets. So, so the layer of paint is a billionth of a meter thick. Yes, it is. Wow. It is practically not there anymore, but just there enough to to like like a single layer of paint molecules. Gotcha. OK. Um, and, and this this property, um, which is technically the property of calcium copper tetrasilicate, which gives the pigment its color, mm-hmm. um, has been used to both identify artifacts in the in the field and is being investigated by UGA chemists, University of Georgia. Shout out. Hey, that's my alma mater. Yeah. Go dogs. <laughs> um, 
It's being investigated for use in other applications like like medical imaging or security ink or LEDs and optical fibers. See, I can see this being really useful for identifying a real artifact versus a fake one. Oh, absolutely. Because if you were to shine the red light and no, and you got no infrared back, then that's an indication that, no, this is not the real the I mean, real deal. You could argue that perhaps whatever the paint is has worn off to the point where there's nothing left. Except but, for that nanometer thing. Yeah, yeah. That would require you to actually scrub down to the point where you're losing artifact anyway. So. And, and I don't think that the color would be there for you to see right. if you, I mean, I, I think it would essentially not be there anymore. Yeah. So if, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we have wrapped up our discussion about archaeology and technology. There are other tools that we didn't really touch on that... Uh, get much more niche oriented depending upon what the field is. Specifically. Oh, absolutely. And archaeology is a completely huge field. I honestly, every time we start researching for an episode, I'm like, oh, this will be a really fun episode. It'll be so neat and tidy. And oh, this is huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, this was could, not originally a two parter when we first envisioned it. Uh, no, uh, we, we could we could probably go on for many episodes about many of the very specific technologies that different fields of archaeology are using. Sure. And, and in fact, we have done some episodes about either specific technology we've mentioned already or related technologies. Obviously, we, the electromagnetic effect is one of those things we've talked about multiple times. So uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, definitely look into it. I mean, especially if you're like a student and you have never really considered archaeology, that might be an interesting class to take when you're you know, a freshman and you're just wanting to kind of explore and find out what really does spark your interest. Because personally, I find this stuff to be cool, even if it means I'm not wearing a fedora and carrying a whip. I, I'm pretty sure you would allow, be allowed to at least wear a fedora in the field if you really wanted to. Yeah, I'd probably be mocked relentlessly, but how is that any different from podcasting? Aw. So. Um, <laughs> uh, also, if you, maybe if you would like us to do a little bit of that homework for you, um, write us in and let us know if, if there's a specific topic that you want to hear more about. Yeah, maybe there was something we mentioned where you thought, you know, that was really interesting, but I really wanted you to go in more depth in to that thing, let us know, because uh, we're more than happy to look into it and really dive in if that's what you guys are interested in. Or if there's just something else you want to say, maybe you just want to say, hey, Lauren, Jonathan, good job. You know, we respond well to praise. We do. So write us. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on social media. We are on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. Our handle is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 